We're continuing our series through the book of Acts, and this morning we come to Acts 2. I am stealing a little bit of the verse, verses that we read last week, just one verse, verse 36, uh, but we'll be looking at Acts 2, 36 through 47. Let me just give you, before we, we read where we find ourselves in the context of the story of Acts, which is a story of the early church, Peter is responding to these Jews who are astounded that these people are speaking languages that are not their own, and people from all over the world are able to understand what these Jews from Galilee are saying. And so Peter, in response, tells them why these people are speaking languages. And he says it's the Holy Spirit who's come, and the Holy Spirit has come because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so we've come to verse 36, and you can see this in just a second. This is how he concludes his sermon to these people who are astounded at the people who are speaking different languages. Now, verses 37 through 47 will be their response and what happens after that. So here's where we are in the story. So I, 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 I um, want to, to say that to you, and then we'll just begin reading. So that's where we are in the story. Let's read. This is the end of his sermon. The last words that he says. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves or be saved yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord had added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I've also included 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. One simple question. How were you made to live? How were you made to live? This is what philosophers call a great ontological question that has teleological repercussions. That is the end of time. 
How were you made to live? It's perhaps one of life's most important questions. How you were made determines how you live. If you were made for one thing but then pursue another, something will be off. There will be discomfort. There will be a, a, a genuine kind of uh, a, you know, chaos in your soul. There'll be this longing to find rest and quiet. How were you made to live? Let me tell you what the Bible says to this question. The Bible says that you and I were made to be with God. To be with God. And this theme is clear from the beginning of the Bible to the very ends. Consider how the Bible is bookended. That is, beginnings and it ends. In the book of Genesis, we read that God enters into the relationship with the two things that are created in his image, man and female, humanity. And in the midst of their presence, he's walking with them in the cool of the garden. He is with them. At the beginning, God was with man, and it was paradise. Now, when we jump to the end of the Bible, Revelation in Revelation 21, we read of a vision that the apostle John has. And in this vision, a new heaven and a new earth are coming down out of the heavens and a loud voice is heard proclaiming this truth. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The Bible's answer to the question that we all must have an answer to is that we were made to be with God, beginning and end. But what about in the middle? What about this restlessness that we feel? If the beginning of humanity and the end of humanity result in being with God, what about the middle, the time we find ourselves in now? The great Augustine of Hippo, the fourth century bishop, made this famous statement about the in-between. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You see, most of us, no, all of us, feel this restlessness because we were made to be with God, and if we aren't with God, we will be restless. We will long to be popular or famous. We will long to have money and resources and we think, oh, if I could just get more money then the restlessness of these resources, it'll be satisfied. Others believe nowadays that if they could just become the opposite gender that the restlessness that they feel will be resolved. <laughs> What's so sad to me about some of these claims, like let's just take the transgender claim, is that the reason that they say, oh, we're restless, and a lot of people are, are committing suicide, what they don't realize is that when they transition, the suicide rates are the same, if not more, afterwards, when they get the same thing. And here's the reality of the in-between. We think we have the resources in and of ourselves to resolve the restlessness of our hearts. And we could think of those who are, are, are on the edges doing this transgender debate, but it's true of us here in this room if we're not even struggling with that. The restlessness of the in-between is very real in all of us. How about you? Are you restless? Does something feel off with your life? What were you made for? 
this morning, I want to remind you or provide for you the answer to the in-between. I want to provide you and tell you that there is rest in the in-between. You see, throughout the Bible, between Genesis and Revelation, there is a way for God to be with his people. And that way was through a temple. The Jews had this beautiful temple in the middle of their city. It was this glorious temple with gold everywhere. If you've read the book of Exodus and Leviticus, you know the particular details of these books. And what's fascinating to me is that when you look into the temple and see the, the different trees and then the, you have these angels that are, that are crazy, all of that imagery is the imagery of the garden. The temple is just a picture of what was at one time God with his people. And the temple and the Jews was where God dwelled with his people. Consider the book for the priest, Leviticus. This is the people who, who would deal with all that the temple was about. Consider what God says in Leviticus. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Where? In the temple. The Jews understood this. This is why the temple was a holy and revered sight to them. This is why they tie ropes to the priest's legs so that if they went into the presence of God, the holy, holy, holy God, and they had sin and they didn't follow God's law, they would die. And ain't nobody going into the holy of holies. We gotta roll this dude out. It was a holy and reverent place because God is holy. And to be with God was a deep and difficult place if you were in sin. Well, we are in sin, but there is a temple that we can access to find rest for our souls, to find the very place our hearts were made for. And this temple is a living temple. Acts 2 is the picture into this living temple. The spirit of God has come, and people are speaking languages that are not their own. And the people have these little tongues of fire. It's a very strange thing. What are these tongues of fire? And it's a picture of what the Old Testament had of the temple. If you know anything of, of the Jews as they were coming out of Egypt, there was a pillar of cloud by day that covered them. And there was a pillar of fire at night that gave them warmth. This same fire was the presence of God. And now this presence of God is falling and descending upon living people. Here is the resolution to all of our longings, to our restlessness. God coming to be with us, living temples. How do we become living temples? How do we experience the very thing our hearts were made for? That's the first thing that we're going to look at this morning from Acts chapter 2. Becoming the living temple of God. Becoming the living temple of God. Now there are two steps from Acts 2 that we see that we can learn in order to become the living temple. And the two steps, very simply put, repenting and believing. You know, if you've been to Central 201, that I love to talk about this, that the Christian life is one of two, two steps each and every day. Repenting and believing, repenting and believing. 
And this is how we get to become the living temples where God can dwell in our midst, repenting and believing. Let's walk these two steps again. First, if we wanna become living temples, we've gotta repent. And here's what repentance is. It is a turning away from our independence to dependence on God. Turning away from our independence and turning towards dependence in God. In this step, in repentance, we are recognizing that our independence is sinful and deserving of God's wrath and punishment and that our only hope is in God. Consider how Acts 2 portrays this. Peter is preaching a sermon about the Holy Spirit and his work and how it came about because of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And he concludes his sermon in verse 36 saying this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified them. I want you to see this. The last words of Peter are incredibly brutal, but true. He is honest with the people that he's speaking to about what they did. You crucified the living and true God. There's no sugarcoating. There's no kind of tiptoeing around, you know, caring for these people, making sure that they, they're okay with what they're about to hear. No, he just tells them straight up, you're a sinner. You killed the living God, and you gotta deal with that. What is true about these people and what is true about you and I is that we are sinners, that we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. But this truth is an important and necessary step in repentance but it is not easy. One of the most poignant and important stories of my childhood and perhaps life came after I was caught stealing a toy from a Christian bookstore. I begged my mom to purchase this 25 cent toy, but she refused time and time again, so I took matters into my own hands. I took that 25 cent toy and slid it into my pocket. When I got to the car, I took the toy out of my pocket, and like the fool that I was, I began to play with it right in front of my mom. My mom, seeing this played out, immediately says, where did you get that? And caught in this stealing, I told her I got it from inside. And she told me, you need to march back into that bookstore and confess to the, the owner of this bookstore what it is you just did. So in great shame, I did what she said, and I hated every moment of it. I hated walking back to the owner to acknowledge that I had stolen from him. I hated that my mom was disappointed with me in stealing this. But as much as I hated this moment, it was one of the most poignant stories of my life because I could no longer ignore the fact that I was a sinner. The truth about me was in the open. I was guilty. I was a sinner. My mom didn't sugarcoat it for me, and Peter didn't sugarcoat it for these Jews who are listening to the sermon. And look at what it results in, verse 37. Look at this. Upon hearing that they crucified the living Lord, they, they were cut to the heart. They, they were found out. Oh boy, this is true about me. And just in the midst of this difficult season, they looked at the apostles and Peter's and they asked them a very humble question. What shall we do? 
I'm a sinner. What shall we do? And what's Peter's word? One word. Repent. You see, if we're going to become the temple of the living God, we must follow this step. We must repent. We must recognize the independence in our lives, how we turn from living the life God has called us to live, and we, we, we live the life we want to live. We, we live the life we feel it should be lived. We, we just love our sin so much. But we must repent of this. We must see that this action, these actions, this independence results in the eternal fires of hell. If you have not wrestled with the fact that if you do not find salvation in Christ, that you will be in hell, then you need to wrestle with this. Your sin will lead to hell. Eternal separation from God. And there's only one thing that you can do. Repent. Turn from your independence and look to God. This is the only step. There is no way. My friends, repent. Turn from your independence and start being dependent on God. Of course, this is the first step, to repent. The second is like it, and you already know it. The second step is to believe. If you want to become the living temple, the place that your heart was made to be, you must repent, but you also must believe. We have to believe first and foremost that God is merciful to those who do in fact repent, who acknowledge their sin before God. I am a sinner. We have to rest assured in the very words of Psalm 103, verse eight. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We must believe this. If we are to become living temples, we have to believe that God is merciful and gracious to those who repent and that his mercy and grace are clearly demonstrated to us in Jesus. How do we make sense of mercy? My guess is there's not much mercy in your life. That when you and your job make a mistake, your boss comes down hard on you. Or as a child, you, you do something wrong, and mercy is not what you're experiencing. Maybe it is, sometimes. I hope some of you parents are that way. But mercy is counterintuitive to so much of our experience, is it not? Where does this mercy come from, from God himself? Well, consider the words of Peter after his command to repent. He says, not only to repent, but to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Knowing most of you, you have spent a lot of time in the church. And a phrase like, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, it, it can go in one ear and out the other. Like, what, what, what is it? <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, sounds good. But we have to listen to this statement with fresh ears. I want you to consider it again. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. What is this baptism in the name of Jesus Christ? First, we have to consider what baptism is. Baptism was a ritual where they would take water and it would be washed on you. And it was used in the Old Testament as well as in the time of Jesus. You might see that Jesus himself was baptized. And in this ritual, there's this picture that we see taking place. Water washing away a spiritual dirt. 
So baptism is a simply a signifier of the washing away of our sins. But baptism Peter refers to in this passage is not just a regular baptism. It's a baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. So in tying this baptism to the name of Jesus, what he is saying to these Jews is if you want to be clean from your sin, you have to be cleaned through the blood of Jesus. And it is only through Jesus from which you can be cleaned. It is his blood which washes away your sins. But how is Jesus the one who can wash away sins? You see, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God himself who took on flesh and lived the life that you and I were called to live. He was always in communion with God. You know that, right? Why? Because he was without sin. He never broke a command. But then he did something, something that was very antithetical to the way he lived. He died a sinner's death, taking upon him the very punishment for sin, Why? Because he wanted to become your substitute. He became the substitute for you and I. He took our place and we took his. This means of substitution is the way that God displays his love and mercy for us. We, in and of ourselves, cannot make ourselves clean. We need a God who makes us clean. And in Jesus, he has made us clean. In this substitution, we see God's display for his love and mercy, but we also see the ways that we might be forgiven and brought into the presence of God without compromising his righteousness and justice. In Jesus, we see the punishment for our sin is paid for. In Jesus, our sins are washed away. And in our sins being washed away, we are made holy and therefore capable of receiving the very presence of a holy God. The only way that you and I can be in the presence of a holy God is to be holy, and Jesus has made that holiness possible. Through belief in Jesus, we become the living temples that we are promised and that our hearts long for. Have you repented? And do you believe in the mercy of God that comes to us because of Jesus? My friends, do not tarry till you're better, for then you will never come at all. Justin, that all right? Hopefully. (laughs) Some demonic stuff going on there. I feel like we gotta, y'all better lean in. (laughs) Repent and believe, do not wait. If today you are pressed with your sin, look to Jesus, believe, and you will be saved. If you are not baptized, believe, and we will baptize you. (laughs) Consider again what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? How is that possible? Because you've been made holy through the blood of Christ, which is washed away your sins. Friends, you can become the living temple if you repent and believe. To those of you who have repented and believed, you are the living temple. So becoming a living temple starts with repentance and faith, belief 
But this begs a second question that Acts 2, 42 through 47 asks us. How do we live as the living temple? This is what these verses show us, what it means to be the living temple. If God has made us the living temple, how do we act as the living temple? So secondly, being the living temple. Being the living temple. What does it mean now that we've been made the living temple? What does it mean that we live as the living temple? See, in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of religious activities that surrounded the Jewish temple. Like if you read the book of Leviticus, you know all the rituals that the priests would have to do in order to go into the presence of God. You'd hear these bulls that would be, you know, mooing one second, and then you'd hear like, sorry, this is gross, like the blood. And you'd hear like, there's a lot of sounds and a lot going on. You'd hear prayers of the priests chanting these psalms that they would sing. You would hear people going and talking to the priests. There would be um, a lot of activity around the temple, a lot. It would have been a noisy place. And the living temple from Acts 2 is also a noisy place. The Holy Spirit has come and made living temples out of people. And once again, there is noise and there's work around the living temples. And what is the noise and the work of the living temple? Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You wanna know the noise and the clamor of the living temples is, what it means to be the living temple today in this world before we come to see him face to face, it means four things. And being devoted to four activities, teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. This is what it means to be the living temple here and now, the very place where God dwells. First, what does it mean to be devoted to to teaching? Well, we see that the people that had become the living temples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is, to the 12 disciples that Jesus had raised up. These 12 disciples were often taking Old Testament passages, just like Peter did in Acts 2, and explaining to them how Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies, and that we owe our allegiance to him. And these apostles would, would, would help the people understand this and, and, and then and say, hey, this is how we are, are to live in the name of Jesus. And they would do this week in and week out, probably day in and day out. We as the living temple must be devoted to these same apostles' teaching. And that's why at Central Hope, we make it a priority that you are in the word of God each and every day. That's why we have that, that journal back there called the Seeing Jesus Journal, what we call CBR. And it's a, it's, a, it's a way for you to listen to the teachings of the apostles. The New Testament itself are the teachings of the apostles. They're taking what they understood of the Old Testament, seeing how Jesus fulfilled it, and explaining it to us. The Old Testament is how God's working. The New Testament is how God's working. But you can't read the Old Test- or New Testament without reading the Old Testament. Know the word of God. Devote yourself. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm teaching. This is what the living temple does. This is what it means to be the living temple. So not only just teaching, there's a second thing, fellowship. We are told that these living temples were devoted to the fellowship. Simply put, they spent time together. They cared for each other. They laughed together. They played together. They prayed together. They worked together. They lived together. This is what it means to be in fellowship with one another. 
I, I want you to think about it this way. One of the most radical things about Christianity is that there was no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile. It's a beautiful thing. But for a people who are so um, ingrained, the Jews, it was really hard for them to, to allow Gentiles in. Why? Because they were one big family. And the family took care of themselves. But now Christ has come and the Spirit has come into all these people and a new people was being put together. And it was rooted in the same kind of family heritage that the Jews had. It's just that there's no longer Jew or Gentile. What a privilege this is. It's a chance for us to be together, to be the family. And that's what they did. Living temples are the family. That's why you hear churches a lot of the time say, hey, we're a family. And it doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from. It just matters that you've repented and believed. And if you repented and believed, you're part of the family. And we're going to take care of the family the way family takes care of themselves. And this is what they did. So to be a living temple, it means to be devoted to one another, to see each other as family members. This is what they did early on. So the clamor and the noise of the living temple today is one of vacuum cleaners going off and food being purchased and given out. It's taken care of. It's, it's listening to tears as you're talking to one another about the difficulties you're going through. We need each other. This is what it means to be the living temple. So the living temple is not just devoted to the teachings and to fellowship, as we said, but also devoted to the breaking of bread. And I think this means two different things. I think it means that you need to eat together, <laughs> straight up. You need to go to lunch together after church. You need to meet with each other during the week to have meals together. And no, there doesn't have to be some kind of like, this is our, uh, what we're trying to accomplish. No, just go be together. There's something that happens, and I don't know what it is, but there's something that happens in our hearts and our souls that when we break bread together, our guard gets let down. And we get to enjoy one another. I, I, the, the early church, I think when they fellowship, part of their fellowship was breaking bread and just straight up eating together, eat together. One of the things that I love about this church, and it doesn't happen every Sunday, is that a lot of you guys go to lunch together. And maybe there's some of you that wanna go to lunch together. Uh, what I would ask you to do as the people of God is to ask people that you see, hey, you wanna go to lunch with us? No, they can't go to lunch all the time. But what a gift, being asked to go to lunch and to share a meal together. I remember when, when Kimberly and I moved to Orlando, Florida, after we had been in ministry for a long time, we were looking for a new church. And the first Sunday we went to this church, we were invited to lunch and immediately felt this is where we belong because we were asked to go to lunch. Do the same, brothers and sisters. So breaking bread certainly means eating meals, but I think it also means a second reality. It means partaking in the Lord's Supper, the very practice that we do each and every week. Here at Central, we believe that God has uniquely tied his spiritual presence to the breaking of bread and to the drinking of wine, his body and his blood. The early church devoted themselves to the breaking of this bread, and they knew and understood that this bread and this wine feeds and nourishes their souls. Just as the temple in Judaism was constantly partaking in the sacrifice so that their sins might be atoned for, so the breaking of bread in our church points us back to the very thing that was broken, Christ's body and blood. 
and we devote ourselves to this, remembering we are in the presence of God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of his body and his blood. So we as a church have it as a staple of our church to participate in the Lord's Supper each and every week with small occasions. Breaking of bread. So the living temple learns by the teaching of the apostles through fellowship, through eating one another and eating of the Lord's body and blood. And finally, the living temple is a, is a temple that prays. You see this in this. They devoted themselves to the prayers. I'm gonna go off here in a second, okay? I'm gonna go off on prayer. I heard a sermon this last week on prayer by a well-respected man. I kind of was lost in it. I didn't really quite understand all the things that he was saying, but I did pay attention to the way that people responded to a sermon on prayer. And the way that people responded to prayer was one of guilt, as if prayer was a law, like you shall pray. Like I know the 10 commandments, but I know that that's not one of them. And yet here are, are well-respected men saying, oh, I just don't pray. Oh my goodness, I'm just a bad prayer. And I wanna look at them. It's a pet peeve of mine. And it happens to me too. It's me too. I could probably go around each and every one of you guys, like how's your prayer life? And your head would probably drop. It's true. You could probably feel it in your heart right now. But here's the thing. Prayer is not the problem. You praying is not the problem. The problem is your heart. So when you repent of your prayerlessness, it's, that's kind of like silly. It's not prayerlessness that you need to repent of and to turn away from. No, it's your independence. We pray or we don't, or we don't pray because we can think we can do life on our own. We think that our independence can somehow magically do this. And most of us in this room are very talented, intellectual, thoughtful, have great wealth, and we can do life on our own. And because we can do life on our own, we don't pray. Prayer ain't the problem. It's our heart. And so what needs to be repented of is our independence and our belief that we can think we can do life on our own. Think about the people who, who, who received the Holy Spirit. Why do you think they were devoted to prayer? Maybe it's because the Jews of that day wanted them dead. <laughs> they were deeply aware of the need that they had for life. And so, of course, they devoted themselves to prayer. Look, we might believe this mirage that we, we somehow have life together and we can do things. to get like we, we, we got our life managed. But here's the thing. It's a mirage. We need God. The things of this world will not satisfy us. We need God. And so we must devote ourselves to prayer, not because prayer is some commandment, but because prayer is the very resource that God has given us so that we might understand our dependence on God and that God might work through our prayers in being dependent upon him. This is what the living temple in the early days did, and it was a beautiful thing. Now, what I think is so beautiful about this, and it is indeed a picture to us, and this is it, and I'm done. I know I went long, but this is it. I'm done. What I want you to see here is when they, the living temple, committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, look at what happens. Six things happened to the, the living temple. 
First, all. All came upon every soul. What an awesome thing to live with all. The other day I had a Hershey bar and I was in a really good state of like dependence on God. And I'm telling you, when I ate that Hershey bar, it was so sweet and beautiful. There was awe. What a God that created such a sweet treat as a Hershey bar. That's like the lamest candy bar that there is. But there was something, <laughs> there was something about the chocolate that was so good. And awe came upon me. This is what happens to a people that are committed to the living temple, being the living temple, all. Secondly, miracles, wonders, and signs were being done through the apostles. I have to ask the question to the American church, to our church, of a people who think that we can do it on our own. Why don't we see miracles? Well, maybe because we, we are living dependently on ourselves rather than on God. And we don't see God work in miraculous ways. They did. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Thirdly, there was unity. All who believed were together and had all things in common. In a world of divisiveness, a world that is seemingly pitting people against themselves, family members against family members, a, a social media world that's dividing people, here is a picture of unity where, 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 where all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is the result of being the living temple. Fourth, selflessness. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need. These people understood that their material possessions, whether they're rich or poor, were all a gift of God. And they didn't see it as something that they would hold on to or have life from. They just gave it away as they see need. Fifth, they were filled with thankful hearts. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Thankful people are the best people. Thankful people are the easiest people to be around. When you're around them, you're like, man, that's a great person. They're just thankful. This is the result of a living temple being committed to the fellowship, to the teaching, to the prayers, and to the breaking of bread. Lastly, growth. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the reality. That which is not growing is dying. And what a delight it is to belong to that which is growing and vibrant. And the living temple commits itself to the very things right in front of us. There is growth. And the growth is not a reflection on the people who did their job. No, the growth is a reflection on the great God who is living and active. We need no greater picture than the one given to us in Acts 2 to be the living temple, my friends. We have a picture of how God has come and dwelt with us, the very thing our hearts were made for. He's made it possible for us to be the living temple. And now, but before Revelation 21 comes, where we will see God face to face and the tears will be wiped away from our eyes, now we have the ability to live out this calling of God being with us. Let us devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Let us devote ourselves to the fellowship of one another. Let us devote ourselves and consider the breaking of bread. And let us be dependent people in prayer. And these realities will be true among us as well. Let me pray. 
Our God, we give thanks to you for this reality, that indeed our hearts can find rest in you. Oh Lord, may we, your people, people who have followed you, walked with you, have repented, have believed, may we indeed continue in this way. May, us, may we believe the very words of the Apostle Paul, that we are indeed the temple of the living God. What a great privilege this is. May we be about the living temple, and may you get the glory. Amen.